Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Had a Sunday or multiple Sundays. Maybe you grew up this way. Where you felt like the preacher knew everything there was to know about the Bible and with little to no prep, he just casually downloaded infinite wisdom and you sat there, stunned, amazed, but mostly ashamed. I skipped my quiet time most of this week, and that's the reason I don't know the Bible, and I'm a loser, I'm a, I'm a terrible Christian. This is not that week. It is my privilege, I've told you guys for five years, God is the one who's the center hopefully of all of our affections and all of our attention. He's the one with all the answers. And it was my blessing this week to have the toughest sermon prep I think I've ever faced. Because I don't know how you come into this section of text with any intellectual integrity, let alone spiritual integrity, and go, how am I gonna teach this text unless I really have a strong, clearly defined definition of baptism in the Holy Spirit, or to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but if you grew up Southern Baptist in the 80s, what you knew about baptism in the Holy Spirit is what you were against. You didn't know what you were for. Millennials, anybody with me? Growing up, you're 20 years old and you already know 17 things that are wrong with the government and 24 more things that are wrong with the world. You have no idea yet what you're for, but you know how to burn everything to the ground. So my prep early this week had me reading books, some of them with very big words, about topics that I cannot with any honesty say that I've really dug in and studied well. If you asked me a week ago, Greg, what is it to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I could say a couple of answers, and I believe still that those answers are biblical, but man, the scriptures actually say a lot, a very wide variety of things in answer to that question, and we're not going to be able to unpack it today. We're going to get the tip of the iceberg today, just the tip, because there's too much. So... I would be probably lying if I told you today I have a sermon for you because I know what I normally build into my notes, my flow of thought, illustrations. What I think I have for you is I can share with you my Bible study notes from this week of here's where I'm at so far. So if you needed living proof that the person up front doesn't have all the answers, I hope this week gives that to you. We are sojourners following Jesus. Anybody watch The Chosen? Okay. Do you notice that Peter, who is about to be the leader of the church, do you notice how many times he's faithless, he doesn't have the answers, he's trying to lead off in the wrong direction, crazy, bold, but, you know, that often wrong but never in doubt personality, okay? Just because somebody's an elder does not mean they have all of the answers. We are journeying with you following Jesus, We're following Jesus. Every one of your shepherds, your elders here, we are sheep first. We're sheep first, and then we're under shepherds second. So if you want something like notes, you A-typers that are going to take notes anyway, 
You can write this in the margin of your Bible in Acts 1.8. Actually, let me read the text first. And I do have an opening statement. I have what seems to be a problem and what definitely seems to be a solution presented by the book of Acts. And then where do we go from here? Uh, I'm entitling this uh, out loud Bible study, Go Tell People About Jesus. I know we've never used that phraseology around here before. But that's what we're doing today. Acts 1, 6 through 8. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Preached that one last week if you were with us, otherwise go online. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Holy Spirit, teach us what you've revealed through our brother Luke off of Christ's lips. God, give us soft hearts. Give us wisdom that only comes from your spirit to understand what you're saying. We confess so many sins and so many distractions, God. Protect us from those things, God, that we would hear your voice clearly right now and that we would find your words to be sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 So here's an opening thought. I'm just going to call it the problem. It might have formulated into a sermon point if I had had more time. But if you're writing things down, here's where I'm starting. It can feel sometimes like God is moving, just not here. The lives of many Christians and churches in the Western world are lacking effective evangelism. When you follow Voice of the Martyrs, sometimes even on the evening news, if you see something big happen in Christianity in 2023, why is it always in South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Asia? Hmm? I have some theories, to be frank. I, I, I wonder, when I see where the church of Jesus Christ in the late 20th and now early 21st century is exploding and people are coming to see Jesus, and I look at it on a map, I see a conspicuous lack of money half the time. And I hear Jesus' words go, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. Guys, is superlative humorous? Yes. Was Jesus maybe kind of cracking a joke? Yes. But jokes are what they are because there's truth in it. Undeniably, Jesus was being serious. Now, have we seen people all throughout scripture that had resources and worshiped God? Absolutely. Abraham, unbelievably wealthy. Joseph came to be unbelievably wealthy. Solomon, breathtaking wealth. Job, unbelievable wealth. Um, some merchants in the book of Acts. Um, oh, I'm blanking. Who's the lady who sold purple cloth? No, not Priscilla. Lydia, thank you. Uh, Lydia. So we see lots of people who love Jesus who come to Christ, but we just need to understand when you have resources, when you can depend on your paycheck, to save you, to sustain you, to give you hope, it's going to take a miracle for new birth to happen. 
That, again, this isn't an organized sermon. I'm just sharing with you what's been hovering in my heart for 20 years. I wonder if money, and then accordingly, the worship and the reliance on it might be one of the barriers in the industrialized world. I can't help but wondering. But that begs a question. Hey, Greg, are you telling me that God can't move where there's money? Just having my devotional time out loud here, right? That is the natural question then. Even if there was truth to that, are you saying God can't move where there's money? I sure hope not because I'm called to Northern California. Even when we're broke, most of the time we're just broke on paper. That is the industrialized world. There's almost, you know, probably 80, 90% of us have access to a credit card where our crisis is getting over our face in credit card debt. We're not actually going to starve to death, Right? There's poverty in some places and there's poverty in some other places, right? I have been very tempted and I don't know if you have been and we'll talk in the coming weeks. I've been very tempted throughout my adult life to believe, Greg, there are some folks that are lucky enough to be born in tough places so they get to see the kingdom of God. And there are others that are unlucky where everybody is so comfortable, you're not going to hardly get to see a thing. I was in a spot years ago where I just thought, do I need to, do I need to start learning Arabic? And do we sell, and do we get out of here? Because I want to see the wonders of God. I want more. I've wanted more for a long time. And do missionaries, when the word work is difficult, do they say, I'm not worshiping Jesus, I'm just worshiping my front row seat to the results? If God calls you to sow seed in a hard place and lead others to sow seed in a hard place, do you stay or do you quit? That's really the question. What if you know that you know that you know that God has put you in a place where there are so many temptations to rely on self, to rely on my own efforts, to rely on my own smarts, to rely on my own paycheck? What if God has told you that Northern California deserves just as much a chance to worship Jesus as anybody else. Amen. What if you can't escape that? Because if you feel called to Northern California the way I do, this is our burden, not mine. Do we believe God still moves? Do we believe that the God of Acts... Guys, there are two horrible theologies floating out there. I'll just go ahead and do it now. Upending enough expectations in one Sunday then pacify you guys with a picnic so no one slits my tires. There are two horrible theologies floating around in evangelicalism and they are two sides of a very slippery slope. There is a group of folks... And I'm sure they love Jesus, but man, do your elders disagree with them. They believe that God 
can perform miracles. They believe in the miraculous, but you ask God to do it, and that's the only way that anything would ever happen. They believe all of the sign gifts died with the original apostles. So they believe that tongues, prophecy, miracles, healing could not possibly show up as a spiritual gift inside a saint. Um, I have read their arguments. I've, I've tried to wrap my head. Um, but tragically, they have a knack for explaining their position logically and not citing Bible verses. And that's a problem. There's a group way on the other end of things. Gosh. Stephen Furtick really laid an egg last week. I don't know what to tell you. There are megachurch pastors in our country that will say to be made in the image of God is to be God. He's said from the pulpit, I am God Almighty. He has said those words from his pulpit and 9,000 people cheering him on. And he's not saying it in the sense of like, I can create Saturn, but he says it in a very self-helpy sense, like the reason you don't have that promotion yet is you haven't spoken it into existence. Name it and claim it, you know. And it's like God spoke things into existence. You can speak. It's, it's really pop psychology shoved into Christianity. To take things way over here that I am so big as a Christ follower that I can do everything takes us to a place where we don't need God anymore. Does that make sense? I'm so big, what would prayer be if I can just do it all myself? Prayer is non-existent. Faith is non-existent if I can do it all myself. Uh, over here, the spiritual gifts, the sign gifts in particular are dead and that was just a one-time thing to get the church started and uh, God doesn't do that anymore. Uh, I find both of those, oddly, while they're on opposite ends of a continuum, I find them to both have a God who is much smaller than I would appreciate worshiping. Has anybody, any of you, some of you have been following Jesus longer than I've been alive. Any of you seen in scripture where God just says, this is only for the book of Acts, I'm not gonna work anymore. At the end of chapter 28, God says that, right? Amazing power to draw people's attention to the gospel, proclaim the gospel, people get saved, amazing things happen, Rome gets transformed. At the end of 28, God says, oh, and we're not doing this anymore. Settle down. Does the end of chapter 28 say that? Settle down, lower your expectations. Us four no more. Let's have a little Bible study, let's have a holy huddle, and then hunker down and wait for Christ's second return. That's dominated by fear, and it's not in Scripture. The bigger God is, the more this is going to demand faith from us, brothers and sisters. So that's my premise. It can feel like God is moving, but not here. And I'm talking about the entire Western world when I say that. I'm not picking on foundation. I'm not picking on citrus heights. Uh, whatever angst we feel, our brothers and sisters in France feel it double. Just the way secularization works. Uh, our brothers and sisters, how few of them there are in Japan, they feel it double. Um, so all that to say, I'm going to lead us in a discussion question. Sometimes our discussion question is light and fluffy to just break ice, but this one is to get some work done. 
Who here is tired of all the talk and wants to get something done? Who are the doers? Where are my doers? Okay, you're going to grab a wrench. Okay. This is tactical. It's practical. Introduce yourself to a couple of folks nearby you and ask and answer this question. What are some possible reasons for a Christian or a congregation to hardly ever tell others about Jesus? What are some possible reasons? We're not pointing the finger. If we're pointing the finger at anybody, let's just do it at ourselves, okay? No Pharisee moments here. What are some possible reasons for a Christian or a congregation to hardly ever tell others about Jesus? I'm going to give you a little bit longer this time, at least two minutes. Go ahead and talk with your new friends. If we had more time, I would love to have kind of workshop-style discussions where I ask each of the groups, but we are a bit pressed for time. So I'm going to share with you briefly some of the possible answers that I brainstormed this week. You guys probably came up with much better answers. Fear of losing a friendship. Fear of increasing hostility. My brother already doesn't like me. Why am I going to make it worse? Fear of losing peace in the family. It sounds like this. It's easier not to rock the boat. My friends all believe what they want. There's nothing I can do about it. That's what it sounds like. Lack of urgency. It sounds like this. My friend has lots of time to do business with God. Maybe that's a young man's sin. We all think we're going to live forever. Busy. It sounds like this. I don't even know when I would stop long enough to have a chance for a spiritual conversation to come up with a friend. Or maybe a lack of passion in my own spiritual vitality. I've not stirred up affection for Christ recently the way I ought to. And so it sounds like this. That priceless gain of knowing Christ Paul talked about is just more theoretical right now than real. Anybody ever felt that one? You read Paul say the priceless gain of knowing Christ and you just, oh, you can feel it like, oh, Lord, I don't, I don't treasure you as much as I used to or I don't treasure you as, much as, I, as I wish I did. Or disbelief that the Holy Spirit is still empowering Christians. It's a terrible Bible study tool. It sounds like this. That was back then. God used to move. God used to do things. That's a... By the way, when you're in Scripture, there are times where there are solid biblical reasons to say there was a context, right? I don't want any of you opening up your Bible and reading, and then they slaughtered the Amalekites, and then you grab a sword, and you go find an Amalekite to kill. That's terrible Bible study methods. There were things that were appropriate in their context in their moment, But that was back then can also be used as a very cheap, sloppy excuse to not study. And it can be used as an excuse to say, get God's command off of me. Like you can take the Great Commission as beautiful as it is, and you can push it off you saying God's not moving anymore. God's not working anymore. I mean, I'll just, I'll share the gospel when out of nowhere a friend sits me down for coffee and says, so tell me about Jesus. Right? There's so much antagonism in the culture, we just think, well, that's how I'll know that God is drawing this person to themselves. When they sit me down for coffee and ask, by the way, I almost had that happen, uh, practically happened once 
38 years, it happened once. What's evangelism gonna be like if once every 38 years that happens? Huh? It's not gonna work. And I dare say, you, if you love Jesus, you probably did not reach out to your Christian friend, or, or worse yet, if you don't even have a Christian friend, you didn't reach out to a stranger who happens to be a Christian and sit them down and say, tell me about your religion, I wanna be converted today. I just woke up and I had an idea, I'd like to change religions. That probably was not your journey. It could be. A guy could come to you and say, hey, I'm blind. Oh my gosh, okay. I wasn't blind, but then Jesus showed up, smacked me off my horse. Like, that happens. But is that every day? Is that always how God works? I think there's biblical history and church history to say, Jesus threw seed out on all types of soils. This means there were people who did not want to hear what he had to say. And then he told the 12, hey, throw seed out there on all types of soils. Some of them are not going to want what you have to say. We're going to see this all through the book of Acts. Divided crowd, divided crowd, divided crowd is the norm. It's the norm. And some of our addiction to comfort has us in a place where we, we're not going to ever rock the boat. We think rocking the boat is bad social skills. Um, you know, if the boat is sinking, I don't mind rocking it. That, isn't that what the Christian believes? Everything humanity has chosen in the rebellion against God is a titanic. And God has told us this is going poorly, it's taking on water, get into a lifeboat named Jesus. Rocking the boat has to actually become normal, and we need to find out how we're going to do it in a gracious way. I'm going to rock the boat because I love you. This is an intervention. Right? So, our problem it can feel like God is moving. Sometimes we say it's not here. And then here's the problem. Here's the actual Bible where I would rattle off to you guys all these scriptures, and I'm not even going to read. Well, maybe I will, just to prove the point. You go to the book of Acts, which is what we're supposed to do, not taking our worldview and shoving it onto the text. Amen? But the text comes to us, and we shove it on top of our worldview. Because either my ideas are God or God is God. You with me? So that was pure gold, folks. Like this is, anyway, that was worth the price of admission. So I come into the book of Acts with some of these questions stirring in my heart. And here's what the book of Acts seems to say over and over and over. Well, let's just start with one. There's a reason I'm preaching it today. It's right there in the text. Here's what Jesus says. You guys are worrying about what we talked about last week. You're worrying about God's stuff, but very important, transition onto what, what your calling is. But you, plural you, the church, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. And then he defines everywhere. We're going to define everywhere next week. But let's talk right now about three things that just happened in a very specific order and I'm going to submit to you over the next coming months. We see this repeated over and over and over in the book of Acts. It's three things in a very specific order. A filling with the Holy Spirit or a baptism in the Holy Spirit. We'll, again, we'll be, unpack this throughout the week. But a, a baptism, at minimum, we know it is a complete immersion. A total surrender to... Actually, no, let's just go ahead and do it. I've, I've got it in notes that I never printed. According to Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the Holy Spirit is different than being indwelt. So uh, indwelt, we're using doctrinal language here. When I 
first put my faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside me permanently. He is staking a claim of ownership over my life. Uh, and Ephesians 5.18 forces us to know that being filled with the Holy Spirit is different than that. Why? Because in Paul's letter, Ephesians, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. If it is a command, then Paul is telling us that we have to actively participate with the Holy Spirit in a way that is different than simply the Holy Spirit is in your life and heart. There is something more. Now, where I believe some of our charismatic brothers and sisters, they take it a little too far and they assign certain spiritual gifts that have to show up, and I just don't believe Scripture teaches that. At minimum, if being filled with the Spirit is a command, then it's something we have to choose into. We have to choose into it. Galatians 5.25 and Ezekiel 36.22-27 say that spirit-filled living means obeying God. You guys know when Jesus was baptized, the Father was speaking from heaven, the Holy Spirit descended, and all of Jesus' ministry was spirit-filled. He was sinless, and he needed the Holy Spirit to do ministry the way he ought. Everything he said was spirit-filled. His power that poured out of him was spirit power. And of course, everything he did was in obedience to God. The Holy Spirit helps us to obey God. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, Romans 8, 9, tell us that spirit-filled living includes a heart that is praising God and a mouth that is praising God. We cannot say we are filled with the Holy Spirit unless our heart praises him and our mouth praises him. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27, and the whole ministry of Jesus and the book of Acts tell us that spirit-filled living leads others to know that God is God. That's the whole point of Ezekiel 36. I'll put my spirit in them, and then, okay, for what end? You keep reading it, so that all the nations might know that I am the Lord. He didn't send his Holy Spirit for kicks and giggles. He's doing it for the glory of his name, just like he has done since creation Romans 8, 14 through 16, tells us that spirit-filled living includes a confidence in one's adoption. So there's an internal spiritual and emotional strength of going, I know who my dad is, and accordingly, I know who I am. And I would suggest in this culture that's lost as a goose on identity issues, Christians who could look into Scripture, feel deeply loved by God so that our thinking, passions, and actions are transformed, man, there's nothing more attractive than running into somebody who knows who they are. That might be an evangelistic tool unto itself just to keep staring into the face of our Savior until we feel so loved that that love pours out of us. So at minimum, spirit-filled at minimum means those things. And I promise to give a weekly update as I learn more. So we're going to keep journeying. Uh, but here, here's the three things. I, uh, so that's spirit-filled. We see in the book of Acts, spirit-filled Christians, and it's just like Jesus said it would happen, leads to power. This is the missing piece. When we go, man, I, 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 don't, I don't know how to share the gospel with my friends, or I do, but it's terrifying, or uh, I have, but I, I don't get anywhere... Man, I could, I could preach a really great sermon like Peter if, if we started off with healing a man, that would make my sermon so much better, right? Because what we're doing is we're seeing a pattern in the book of Acts that Holy Spirit folks receive power from on high and the power leads to a boldness in proclaiming the gospel. This is the pattern over and over again. So the whole, let's just smile 
and they'll know we're Christians? There's no biblical evidence for that whatsoever. Boldness to proclaim the gospel is the end point because God is creating. What did he say in John 4? He is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He's creating worshipers. We know from Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. So spirit-filled saints receive power, and then they will be his witnesses. Not a command, go be my witnesses. You will be. You already love me. You already follow me. I'm going to give you your Holy Spirit, and this will be the fruit of it. You will be my witnesses. Which, of course, begs the question, will I be a good witness or a bad one? What if those are the only two options? Scares me. Hope it scares you. We know this because the pattern shows up over and over again. Luke, the writer, talks about power from the Holy Spirit in the church in Acts 3.12, 4.10, 4.30, 4.33, 6.8, 9.22, 14.1, and 3, 19.11, and 19.20. How many times does he need to say that there is power in the church, that power comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit? And then we look at those texts and look at what happens right after to see where that power leads. Right? And that power, and we'll unpack this too, that power might be the miraculous. But we in, the, in the 2023, we need to ask important questions like, are miracles the only way that the Holy Spirit exhibits power to draw attention to the gospel? Because if, if miracles are the only way, we're going to get ourselves into a spot of despair. We're pigeonholing how God works. Right? I've heard of people who came to Christ because of the way that their best friend loved their wife. Right? We believe that sanctification, the journey of following Jesus, is miraculous and it is spirit-born. Okay? So all through this series, I want to continually warn us of being really careful. The human brain looks for archetypes. We look for patterns and we want to say God always acts this way. The brain loves doing that so we don't have to think about it anymore. Moses saw a bush that was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. Is God allowed to do that? Right? Breaking outside, outside of what we expect. Okay? So, and then boldness. Luke is constantly talking about boldness to proclaim the gospel in Acts 4, 29, 4, 31, 9, verses 27 to 28, again in chapter 13, verse 46, chapter 14, verse 3, 19, verse 8, 28, verse 31. The book is filled with power and boldness to proclaim. Guys, I want boldness to proclaim. Confession time, you're not supposed to use the pulpit as a confessional, too bad. I don't feel that I have boldness to proclaim. That might confuse some of you. Well, let me be clear. This is a church building, and you walked in here knowing there was a cross out front. Like, I'm going to say what I believe is true, believing that you're at least a little bit curious about what God has to say. This requires zero boldness from me. And the fact of the matter is, I've journeyed with these elders for five years, and I know they want the word taught. So even when I have to say something hard, as long as I back it up from Scripture as well as I possibly can, I'm not afraid for my job. You guys can fire me at any moment, but I know that the elders and I have a similar view of the authority of Scripture. 
what am I really risking here? In fact, there would be risk the other way. If I start giving you some limp-wristed, lame gospel, I hope you guys will fire me. It doesn't take boldness to come to folks that either love Jesus or are exploring Jesus and tell them about Jesus. This takes no boldness at all. Just to be clear, don't give me any brownie points. Oh, Pastor Greg, you're so great. You're so courageous. No, I'm not. Let's see how I do at Starbucks later today. I want the boldness that I see my brothers and sisters have in the early church. I want the boldness that I hear about following Voice of the Martyrs on Facebook and reading those stories. I want that. I want my soul to be convinced that the king is worthy. So let's get practical and then let's get over to this picnic. Here are four things that we can do. Again, if you're note takers, by all means, jot these down. If you miss them, it's okay because these are going to show up constantly in the sermons to come. Number one, what can we do to join God in his work? If we do believe he is still working and that some of the barriers are actually faith issues on our part or obedience issues on our part, here's what we can do to join God in his work. Number one, care deeply what the spirit-filled life looks like. How many of you guys know you're not going to work on something until you care? Right? College student, you've declared and redeclared major seven times. Been there for five years and you're still a sophomore because your parents told you you had to go to college. But as soon as you care, you find your purpose and then all of a sudden everything gets really clear, right? First, care deeply what the spirit-filled life looks like. We're not going to study the scriptures until we care. Particularly if the book of Acts make it look like, Greg, this is the journey toward the evangelistic life you want. Secondly, study seriously what the spirit-filled life looks like. First one was heart, now we're getting to the head. Study seriously what the spirit-filled life looks like. In other words, the Holy Spirit wrote a book. You want to know how to follow the Holy Spirit? We've got to start by letting the Spirit tell us what that looks like, and full submission to his leadership as we follow Jesus. So care deeply what the Spirit-filled life looks like. Study seriously what the Spirit-filled life looks like. The, th the third and fourth are going to get harder. Are you ready? Harder? Yes. Third, apologize to Jesus for our excuses. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. When Jesus calls us out, does he give us a lot of time to wallow in self-pity? No, he does not. No, he does not. He says, get up. Eyes up. Let's go. Let's go. Fourth, Live an entirely new life by the Spirit so Citrus Heights hears about her Savior. This is where we're going. We have to care. What were our siblings 2,000 years ago experiencing? What are our siblings experiencing in places where the gospel seems to be moving much faster? 
where people are getting saved. We have to care. Not from an entertainment, you know, man, gosh, we Americans, man, we'll buy a ticket to anything, watch somebody sing, not participating, watch somebody play football, not participating, watch, 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 and Jesus comes along and says, get in the game. We have to care so deeply that he is actually taking people from darkness to light by his gospel, and that we are the jars of clay, not just expecting him to speak from heaven all the time or make rocks cry out. And that this is a privilege, not just a responsibility. Oh, brothers and sisters, we got work to do, so I'm gonna pray for us, because there's no hope unless Jesus does something with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want so much more than what I see. I think my siblings want more than what they see. Or they see it, but they want more of it. God, we want the knowledge of you to fill the earth as the waters fill the seas. We seek and we work for the day where no man can say to his neighbor, you should know God. For everyone will. We thank you that you are so gracious with our brokenness, our lack of capacity, our sinfulness. You you call us out so gently towards something more. I ask you to take our faith up two or three notches so that we could baptize 20 people on a single Sunday and that Bayside's baptizing 500 that same day, and that Pioneer Baptist is baptizing 45 more, and we're not even shocked. Take us to the place where moves of God do not surprise us anymore. Give us the boldness, God, that we see in the book of Acts, because you have given us power because we're filled with your Holy Spirit. We take all of our lives, our thoughts, our passions, our actions, our future, we take everything and we lay it at your feet afresh. Because God, we want more. Less of us and more of you. In the saving name of Jesus Christ, foundation prayed. Amen.